welcome to Tokyo Game Life, a Tokyo-based video game podcast focusing on Nintendo and gaming culture in Japan's capital. I'm your host, Mono, bringing you a slice of gaming life from Tokyo. The cherry blossom season has really wound down over here. I had a great time this year, though, but really, I have a great time every year. You have to go out of your way to not enjoy the Hanami season. The sakura petals have fallen, so now you have permission to just chill inside and play some video games. And we're talking about a lot, including a very unique series from Japan. I'm chatting about the long-running JRPG series Atelier with returning guest Ongaku Gamer. He previously appeared in an episode about Boku no Natsuyasumi, and now he's back to share some wisdom about this easygoing yet richly complex alchemy RPG franchise. I've also been playing some smaller titles that are part puzzle, part action. Kurukuru Kururin and Amazing Barman, so I'll dig into those as well. Plus the news about Zelda, Nintendo Systems, King of Fighters, and a lot more, but mostly Zelda. Let's jump right into the feature on the Atelier series with guest Ongaku Gamer. Tokyo Game Life, only on the Tokyo Beat Podcast Network. Today's feature is about the very long-running Japanese gaming series that might fly under a lot of people's radar. I'm talking about the Atelier series from Gust and Koei Tecmo, a unique JRPG franchise that has recently started to break out into the mainstream. The series' biggest title, Atelier Rises 3, launches soon, and I brought on a special guest to chat about the Atelier games, both past and present. So guest, please introduce yourself. Hello everyone, uh, I go by the name Ongaku Gamer on Instagram. I'm a gamer and a game collector, I guess. Thanks for joining me yet again. We previously talked about Boku no Natsuyasumi, and now we're talking about another Japan-heavy franchise. So the first question is always the easiest. How would you sum up the Atelier franchise? Yeah, so it's a JRPG that puts emphasis on crafting items as well as a, the communication with party members and also the NPCs in the town. It typically has a relaxing atmosphere. And whereas a lot of a lot of RPGs actually have an emphasis on adventure and the battles, but here and the story, of course, but in this series, it puts an emphasis on these other smaller aspects or the daily life aspects or the relaxing aspects, which is quite different to the other RPGs. What kind of features are common throughout the franchise? Yeah, so the, the funny thing is about the Atelier series is that the system changes depending on the title. And it's actually that they typically bundle it in a trilogy. So they release three titles with a similar concept, a similar world, a similar game system. But then on the next series, a next trilogy, they change it around a little bit. So the main gameplay elements like crafting items or communicating, relaxing atmosphere, they're all there in all of the series. But depending on the series, the combat might be more action-oriented. Something it might be more tactical in one of them. Maybe the item crafting would change into a more puzzly, you know, um, system. So they all change around a little bit. But the main thing is, you know, crafting items and then the communication, I think, is the main part of the series. How did you first discover the series? So I played the first one, Atelier Mary, hmm. um, back in the PS2 days. So Atelier Mary is a PS1 title. I think it's from the late 90s, 1997-ish. Hmm. Uh, so I was actually looking for a very relaxing game. So I just came off playing Dark Chronicle, 
which is mm. quite a relaxing JRPG, and I really like the atmosphere of it. So I, at the time, actually, I typically typed on the computer, relaxing PS2 game, or <laughs> a PS2 game with nice as- atmosphere. And, and almost all the time, this Atelier series always came up in the search button and also the Amazon recommendations. Mm. And I was always curious about it. And then I tried Atelier Mary because it was the very first one. So I, I, I thought I should start with the first one. But interestingly, I actually didn't get into the series at the time. Uh, at the first, very first one, of course, they're still building on the game system and it's still very early stage of the, get, of the series, of course. So, and it also had a time limit system. And this is a thing that kind of divided between the series fans. So the series was actually initially targeted to non-gamer female audiences. Hmm. So the audiences that they were targeting were the people they thought that maybe typically they haven't been playing video games. So this is kind of similar to what they did with the Yakuza series, because the Yakuza series were targeted to non-gamer adult male audiences. They were right. putting their niche into different places. But for this one, so it was like that. So that's probably why it has the very nice atmosphere as well. The visuals, very cute visuals and things like that. But the time limit system actually, for some people like me, <laughs> really who really likes the, you know, Boku no Natsuyasumi, the relaxing aspect, the time limit system was a little bit stressful for me. So... I actually put a little bit of a distance after playing the first couple of those older games because I realized the time limit system was a little stressful. And then it was actually only until Atelier Riser that I thought, okay, I'm actually going to give this a, this series another shot, mainly because it, the time limit was actually gone right. from, a, from the game a couple of titles before. I guess, in a way, Atelier Riser kind of made me... Uh, uh, fan of the series, but hmm. the first game I played is the Atelier Mary. What was it about the Atelier games that really hooked you? Yeah, so I think that relaxing aspect definitely. Yes, so as, as you know from the Boku no Natsuyasumi series as well, I really like, I really appreciate the atmosphere in games because I do really want to relax and I'm not a very competitive gamer as you might say so I, I haven't played much fighting games or you know online games and stuff like that so and the one thing i do like in video games is enjoying the communication and exploring the town walking in the town like feeling like you're living there kind of thing atelier riser really just really had just that that was really one aspect that i really enjoyed about atelier riser so that kind of hooked hooked me in and then I think I tried Atelier Lulua, which is also kind of, it's kind of similar. It's really relaxing, no time limit. And then I kind of went from there, like played a lot of games from that company, Gust, who's a developer. They tend to use the same game engine or game assets or something. I don't know, but they use that. So I uh, tried all these different games that they made. And yeah, and I kind of really got hooked into the developers and the Atelier series that way. There are 24 titles in the main series and over a dozen spin-offs. Many of the games are Japan only, with the first localized title being Atelier Iris on PS2. So you mentioned earlier that you played the first one, Atelier Marie. Have you played any of the other Japan only Atelier games? Yeah, so uh, the the one, the Iris one, I actually th- those ones I actually haven't played. So the one that got localized, Atelier mm. Iris and the Manakemia series, 
those ones I actually haven't played, but the ones before I did play a bit of all of them. So Mary, Ellie, they, they have kind of some Lily, <laughs> you know, they have uh, similar names at the beginning. But yeah, so they, they, I think except for one of them, they all had the time limit system. So I did play all of them. I'd say that pre uh, yes, through three era uh, or pre dusk trilogy, which is trilogy in the PS3 series, is quite different to what we have now. So I think we can almost almost treat them as a different series kind of thing. Hmm. What about the spinoffs? Have you tried any of those? Most seem to be still kind of RPGs, but there are some puzzle games as well. I'm most curious about the Game Boy titles, since I kind of wonder how they translated a fairly complex alchemy system to an 8-bit handheld. Yeah, unfortunately, I haven't tried the Game Boy ones, but I, I'm really curious to. Mm. I think the only spin-off I've tried is the Eruke, the one on PS4. It's like a town building. Oh, yes. Yeah, town, town building one. Yeah, that's quite interesting. It's quite different to the other other series titles, but it's like a it's kind of like a celebration for the anniversary. I forgot what anniversary it was, but it was a celebration for it. So all the old Atelier characters come back and, you know, it's like a party title kind of thing. But yeah, I, I'll be actually curious to play those Game Boy titles. Although the series has been around for over 25 years, it really started to break out into the mainstream recently with 2019's Atelier Ryza. Both that and its sequel are the best-selling Atelier games. Why do you think this sub-series managed to reach people who have never played an Atelier game before? I think one big aspect has been on social media a lot, but the character, the look of the protagonist, mm. that indeed brought a lot of attention. But I think the other aspect is the summer memories aspect, making memories with people in that summer in a way, I think that's kind of trendy these days, even with, you know, anime, they really like the summer youth, you know, making memories and those things. I think they globally, it's kind of um, a trend. And I think Atelier Riser really captured that fan base. So people who haven't played games or who people, people who haven't played a much JRPG, but maybe they like anime and maybe they liked the feeling of, of the atmosphere or the summer vibe. And I think that kind of drawed a lot of attention. I recently cleared Atelier Ryza, which is my first Atelier game. It's a franchise that I've been aware of for years, ever since the PS2 days. And as a JRPG fan, I've been a bit curious because, well, they just keep making them. So I assume there's some sort of appeal to them. And <laughs> many people said Ryza was the most beginner friendly. So I started with that one. Overall, I really enjoyed it. And it's pretty different from a lot of JRPGs that you mentioned because it's much smaller in scope like you aren't traveling around the world and you are mostly just exploring like a single town in the outskirts around it. But the game has just as much content as any other globe spanning RPG. The alchemy system was pretty daunting at first and I still don't 100% have a grasp on it, but it was addicting to unlock new recipes to make absurdly powerful weapons. What do you think about the alchemy system? Because this is the franchise's claim to fame. Is it maybe too <laughs> complex or did you think it's a lot of fun? Yeah, I think, yeah, to start off with, it is a little confusing, definitely. And then Riser does introduce, you know, the other parts of alchemy as well. I think there was also like doubling in items and then also going into different worlds to get items and things like that. Yes. Uh, but uh, in fact, there's the other series actually has, for example, at Atelier Sophie 1 and 2, that is a very um, 
it's like a fan favorite atelier so if you wanted to and that has an even more complex <laughs> puzzle system that even if i after i finished it i'm still like there's probably a bit more depth to to what i <laughs> understand but yes it's it's definitely a little bit puzzling but i think that's it, it's a type of thing that if you really if people who get into it really get into it but if you don't want to do much of it then you actually don't need to go too deep into it so i think they kind of did it nicely you know they have also the automatic feature uh, but yes so some of the items are quite hard to put together so those times i, I guess people can look at the walkthrough <laughs> and things like that yeah but i understand it. it could be a little bit daunting at times the alchemy system yeah it's pretty interesting because most other jrpgs they kind of balance you buy weapons or you find weapons mm. and some games do have like crafting but this one everything is from crafting no matter if it's a healing item or if it's a weapon so it's really interesting to see how they've kind of channeled every single aspect of the JRPG into this one system. I totally agree. Instead of grinding and leveling up your character, often you don't even need to fight that much. And you just do, you know, find items and alchemy, 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 and make a really good item. And maybe you can even finish the game at a very low level. I guess that also comes to a little bit of a freedom there. If you really want to go, you know, grinding, then you can also grind a little bit. Although they do have a level limit, but you can kind of grind or you can, you know, simply not battle much and just make items. And just if you really enjoy the item making aspect of the series. Yeah, if you level up, your attack goes up by maybe three points. But if you craft a new weapon, it can go up by like 80 or 100 right. or even more than that. <laughs> right. And we talked about Ryza having kind of a, you know, a popular look. But I think as a character, she's also kind of interesting because she's sort of a troublemaker and she's just kind of bored with her life. And unlike a lot of other RPG protagonists, she still has her parents that she talks to every day. So I think she kind of stands out. So how is she different from other Atelier heroines, for example? Yeah, that family aspect definitely is quite a unique feature. I, I as after you told me just then, <laughs> that is quite a, because usually, you know, you depart from your house and then, you know, go on an adventure with everyone else and maybe come back later in, in the ending or something like that. Mm. But she, she's kind of really local, right? She's just keeping it the same place. But of course, on the second game, she is actually not in the town. But yeah, as a character... I reckon she is kind of different to most Atelier protagonists. There is a character in there, Shelley. That game actually has two protagonists. And one of them are really quiet. And the other one is a little bit more kind of tomboy. And then a little bit more strong-minded person. I'm thinking that one of the Atelier Shelley pro protagonists is a little bit similar to Riser. They have stronger opinion in, than most other Atelier protagonists. Traditionally, the alchemists in the Atelier series are not fighters, especially the earlier games. They back off. If you're in the front row, you just get knocked out <laughs> very right. quickly. Yeah. So you actually had to hire warriors that would protect her and also hmm. battle. So th that actually is quite different in Riser because she kind of, you know, hits people with her stick and you know <laughs> right. uh, she, she's right into battle and she does you know quite big magic and moves and things like that flips around you know so she's much more active and tomboy than most other protagonists on their tele series i think mm. yeah i think one of my favorite scenes is when they get the titular atelier they show a cutscene of them building it but she's not doing anything she's just telling people <laughs> what to do which is pretty funny and then yeah. she of course she just names the atelier after herself 
Yeah. So I think she has a really kind of interesting personality. Yes, definitely. Which Atelier games would you say are your personal favorites? I definitely say Atelier Riser is by far my favorite. Uh, mm. But uh, the one I also mentioned, Atelier Lulua, Atelier Shelley, and also Atelier Ferris. I heard that these are not typical choices, uh, apparently, but those are the ones I enjoyed. There's one aspect uh, from all those four games that I really enjoy, myself also being a musician, the music is really good in the series. I think that's aspect I haven't really talked about yet, but the music is really good. I think a lot of the games these days, they will go more to more realistic music or, you know, the grand music, which is also very nice, like film music orchestral music but Italian music they still keep it quite intimate like quite a small scale fitting to the the game itself hmm. uh, and so yeah all these four games that I mentioned Riser, Lulua, Shelley, Ferris they all have very good music and I think that's also one aspect that is a highlight of the series for me and also the all these four games. I think Atelier Riser is definitely a great game for newcomers of the franchise but for those who, let's say, like Atelier Risa and want to try out the other series, what games would you recommend? I would say I think they could go into Atelier Sophie 2, which is the newest one. So gameplay-wise, I think that one is the most polished one. They probably have more funding on that one as well. But Atelier Sophie 2 and also Atelier Lulua, those two, I think, might have a similar vibe to Risa. And also in the gameplay as well. So I think those two, Lulu and Sophie too, I would recommend. The one with the time limits might be a little bit difficult for um, newcomers. I think those ones, they can you know get into it later when they're invest really invested in the series. By time limits, is it kind of like Harvest Moon where you have a set amount of time per day? Or is it like Pikmin where there's a definitive end? Yeah, so uh, there is a definitive time limit. So if you don't do things by the everything by the time the game kind of finishes and then you get an ending, depending on what you did at mm. that point. So you might not do anything and just sleep, 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 and you, you, <laughs> you might finish the game as well. So yeah, yeah. Atelier Riser 3 is coming out pretty soon. What about this game stands out to you? So Atelier Riser 3, the interesting thing here is that I've, tried not to look too much <laughs> into mm. the game because I know I'm going to buy it, right? So I didn't want to look at too much information. But from what I saw in the announcement and the first trailer that I did watch, it does seem like they are going for a bigger world now. So before it was a little bit smaller, but I think they're. it seems like they're going for one of the biggest worlds or landscapes in the series. But I think most people are interested in how the characters from the previous games are going to come out like after these few years that's passed in the middle. Because mm. I think in Atelier Riser and to Riser 2, there's a few years gap, so they're a little bit older. And now to 2 to 3, it's also a few years past and they're a little bit older. So you, the player itself is also, you know, getting older <laughs> every year, <laughs> right. but also the characters are a little, getting a little older as well. So I think it's, it's kind of like how people grew up with Harry Potter. They, oh, yes. <laughs> yeah, yeah. So that you kind of grow with Harry Potter and it also kind of feels like that with Riza. You also grow with Riza and you get more connection with her. So you're really interested in hearing or getting an update on what, what she's up to and what she's going to do next. So I think the character aspect is one thing that I'm really 
looking forward to and what the situation is of the world at the time. I actually played Atelier Ryza 3 at Tokyo Game Show last Ooh. September, which is kind of ironically the first Atelier game I played is <laughs> Atelier Ryza 3, which is not out yet, but I played it for about 15 minutes right, and it did right. kind of inspire me to play the first game Oh, because okay. I, I thought it was quite fun. And like the graphics are so beautiful. Maybe the other games also have this type of art style, but it's like a very pastel and like watercolor look. And it looks really visually like impressive. And I won't spoil too much in the game or from the demo, but there's definitely a lot of cool things that I did. So oh, okay. I definitely want to check out two though first, because yeah, I'm curious about, you know, Rise's adventure in the big city, but three is something I'm definitely looking forward to. Yeah, definitely mm. looking forward to it. And last question, let's talk about merch. What kind of cool Atelier merch do you own? They have a shop called, I think you also posted on your Instagram, but they have that Koei Tecmo yes. store. That That's the first thing I wanted to go when I went to Japan at that, when they make, <laughs> made mm. that place. Yeah, you're invited with the, the music and things of the Atelier series and also other Koei Tecmo stuff. But the Atelier merch, I think t- typically they don't, have you know like you know final fantasy and things they have like big action figures and things like that but right. unfortunately atelier series don't have too many of those big big figures but they do have a lot of smaller items like uh you know there's acrylic stands or posters little plushies and things like that and of course i did buy all of that and <laughs> of course like it, I, clear file collecting is quite big these days you know oh, yes. people just like people collect cards, I, we buy clear file folders to put in clear files. <laughs> of course, I bought that in Japan as well. And I and went to the Koei Tecmo store and bought the clear files and put them in there. Because the art in Italia series is really impressive. You can display it. And then if you want to display it like on, on the desk and you can put, put it on the desk. So that's kind of what I do. So I think the clear files are actually quite nice. And also the acrylic stands too. Yeah, Clearfile is always the go-to souvenir in Japan because it's likely the cheapest thing in the store. Mm, yes, definitely. Awesome. Well, let's wrap up. Where can people find you? You can find me on Instagram, Ongaku Gamer. Um, I post Japan-exclusive games, so g- games that didn't come out in, in the West, and then also what games I've been playing. Typically, it's not the big titles, mm. but you might enjoy my l- small reviews that I put down. But yeah, mostly Japan exclusive games and JRPGs and also a lot of Atelier stuff. So if you'd like Atelier stuff, if you're curious, then I think you might enjoy my Instagram page. Awesome. And yes, I highly recommend it. I'm learning about new Japanese games I've never heard of pretty much every day from your Instagram. (laughs) So listeners, definitely follow. And the links to everything are in the podcast description. So Ongaku Gamer, once again, thanks for joining me. All right. Thank you. Thank you for having me. Thank you, everyone. Before we get into games, let's take an ad break. Today's show is brought to you by EPOS Gaming Audio. With a comprehensive lineup of both wired and wireless headsets, gaming amplifiers, microphones, and webcams, EPOS has everything you need to experience the power of audio. Like their H6 Pro lineup, which features two versions, an open or closed headset. The closed headset allows you to tap into exceptionally detailed audio and seals out ambient noise, while the open version delivers natural high-fidelity audio with an incredible soundstage. Both headsets include a magnetic detachable microphone and a sleek design that has no wild RGB configurations, just good design. Listeners can save 15% by visiting eposaudio.com gaming and entering code EPOSFRIEND15 at the checkout. 
Weather Tokyo Fresh Podcast. I'm David. I'm Jordan. We're a comedy lifestyle podcast diving into the weird and interesting side of Japan. We often share stories about our lives in Japan, you know, and how you can avoid making the same mistakes. So if you want to take advice from two idiots who have been living here far too long, check out the Tokyo Fresh Podcast. Only on the Tokyo Beat Network. February, Game Boy titles were finally added to Nintendo Switch Online. Not a whole lot at launch, but there were some good games in there. The main problem is, well, I've already played most of them. It's great that people can play Link's Awakening DX and WarioWare now, but I've spent enough time with those titles over the years. But there was one title that immediately caught my eye, 2001's Kurukurukururin. This is a puzzle action game where you navigate a spinning stick through a maze filled with obstacles. Now, I have actually played this before via emulator years ago, but this was the first time I actually sat down with the game for real. It's a franchise I think a lot of Nintendo fans have heard of, but have probably never played. For one, the first game never came to the US. It was a launch title for the GBA in Japan, and did get an English translation, but only for Europe and Australia. There are a weird handful of titles that came out in Japan and Europe, but not in the good old US of A. Doshin the Giant is another one and almost Xenoblade. Isn't it funny to think that Nintendo of Europe localized Xenoblade first? So now, until the heat death of the universe, everyone has to have a British accent in Xenoblade. Maybe the characters in Kurukurukururin also secretly have British accents. The game did finally come to the US via the Wii U Virtual Console in 2016. So like the Super Mario Bros. 3 e-reader levels, which I talked about in a previous episode, the Wii U actually has a few first in terms of virtual console releases for the US. But not many people had a Wii U, so it feels brand new for Switch gamers. The game was developed by Ating, which did appear earlier this year in the podcast when I talked about Pikmin 3 Deluxe. I suppose they are most famous for the Bloody Roar franchise, but they've had their hands in so many other games you'd never expect, like Marvel vs. Capcom 3 and a ton of licensed DS games like Naruto and Kamen Rider. They are one of those workman developers in Japan who are there to help put out a game, while others handle the creative aspects. And they're based in Tokyo, so some extra love there. Kurukurukurunin is not exactly their flagship franchise, but it did get some sequels. There's 2002's Kururin Paradise for GBA and Kururin Squash for the GameCube in 2004. Neither came out stateside, but maybe there is some small sliver of hope that at least Paradise could appear on NSO. The game has an incredibly straightforward premise, get to the end of the maze. The controls are the D-pad to move and A to speed up. But of course, it's not that easy since you're a giant spinning stick that continuously rotates. I think the closest game would have to be Irritating Stick for PlayStation, but in that game you are really just moving a static ball. Here you are significantly bigger and need to think about your involuntary movement. The backstory is that you are a bird flying in an aircraft and you've got to save other birds. Why your ship needs to spin on its own is not really explained, but you're at the mercy of bird technology here. So you're moving this spinning stick around a maze, not trying to touch walls or obstacles, or else you'll lose health. Three strikes and you're out, but there are checkpoints. The game is frustrating, but in a fun way. You can mess up easily by miscalculating your spin when making a tight turn, or getting a bit too cocky and thinking you can just race through a section. Bumping into walls makes an overly dramatic sound, and when you die, your entire ship just shatters. Dying, it'll make you pull your hair out, but it's also kind of funny. There were many times I just laughed after botching a turn or trying something I shouldn't have. The game is fair though, it's not like things are just popping up out of nowhere. 
It's far less about muscle memory and remembering stage layouts and more about careful thinking and strategy. There are clearly labeled spots where you can just stop without your stick taking damage. In these moments of refuge, you need to carefully plan out your next section, where to go, what velocity, what direction, and so on. You can change your direction by hitting bumpers. You might think, well, that doesn't do anything, you're still just spinning. But depending on the curve of an area, you might need to spin with or against it. Early on when you see a bumper, you should hit it because that'll put you in the right position. But in later stages, there are definitely bumpers there that would just mess you up. Or bumpers that are only for optional areas you might not realize exist. It tries not to get too tricky or cute though, since a lot of the game relies on execution. A big part of the appeal of the game is seeing how far you can push it, testing its boundaries. Yes, you are going down a linear path most of the time, but there's enough flexibility in there in terms of your timing, your speed, and a lot of built-in shortcuts. There was one stage I was completely stuck on, so I looked up a guide on YouTube, and the way it was completed was so different from what I was trying to do. But both ways are applicable. There's so much more freedom than you'd expect from a puzzle game. The speedruns on this game are pretty nuts. I hope these people became surgeons or something because we need their precision. Hard to explain, but this feels like a quintessential GBA game. It has those big colorful pixels, it has a weird concept, but it's fun to play, and it really emphasizes the pick up and go aspect of portable software. You play a stage for a few minutes and then just set it down. It feels very much like Choo Choo Rocket, which thankfully did come to the US. I honestly don't know why the US never got this title. I suppose it sold well enough in Japan to get sequels. Maybe they feared it was too short? The game only takes about two or three hours to beat, but I still think there would have been an audience for this game, especially at launch. Nintendo hasn't completely forgotten about it though. It did get a trophy in Super Smash Bros. Melee during the franchise's heyday. And the Helidine, the helicopter stick you control, does have an assist trophy in Brawl. Plus, it did appear as the spirit in Ultimate. I think you could totally bring this franchise back, but Nintendo has kind of shied away from smaller digital releases, unless you're Kirby. Hey, how about a Kirby and Kududin crossover? Maybe you could change your shape by sucking up enemies? Someone make this. If you've got the NSO expansion pack, I think this is a game that's absolutely worth trying out. It's a hidden gem that has thankfully seen the light of day again. There are so many cool games just sitting on NSO right now, begging to be played, so get on it. Now for another puzzle action game, Bomberman. He's returned, and this time, he's amazing. I'd say he was already pretty amazing beforehand, but Konami is saying, no, actually he wasn't amazing until about late 2022, when they released Amazing Bomberman on Apple Arcade. I talked about my free trial for Apple Arcade when they added Pocket Card Jockey, and there are two other games I wanted to really check out, Amazing Bomberman and Choo Choo Rocket. However, Sega delisted Choo Choo Rocket. Oh, Sega, why are you the way you are? But Konami has not delisted Amazing Bomberman just yet, though who knows with them. Well, what is it? Take Bomberman and make it more rhythmy. It's not a rhythm game per se, but it draws a lot of influence from the genre and also has a bit of Tetris Effect influence. It's your classic Bomberman gameplay where you are on a grid and need to blow up the three other opponents. However, death is not the end, as it's not about survival and more about a score attack. Even if you get blasted, you instantly respawn and merely lose points. Whoever has the most points at the end of the song is declared the winner. This is a nice alternative to the typical B-Man style gameplay that is far more risky and makes perfect sense here because they want you to listen to the entire song. The main gimmick of the game is having the song dictate what happens on the playing field. When the song picks up, a flurry of power-ups may appear or blocks may fall to the beat. Every song is different in terms of how it manipulates the battlefield. The stages are your typical flat, square grids though. They really don't break from that mold. I'd like to have seen them be a bit more creative with them or implement some other mechanics from past Bomberman games. 
but it really is the most bare-bones, Bomberman-style gameplay with rhythm element added into it. The songs are mostly electronic pop, but there are some slower tracks in there as well, and a rock one too. It's not purely an audio experience though. Each song has its own overlay added to the map, and there's a video playing in the background that also bleeds into the stage. So you gotta contend with bombs, enemy players, and a bunch of graphical elements bursting onto the screen. All of these are incredibly distracting, though I think that's on purpose. Sometimes you will actually see the real singer of the song in the background. I never thought I'd see some Japanese girls dancing around a Bomberman match, but here we are. The best song is Bomb Bomb Blow Em All by YMCK, a song that sounds right out of Katamari. The stage's visual gimmicks are more pixel-focused, so that's a nice change from the kaleidoscope look a lot of the others have. The game's visual style in general is kind of hard to describe. It's kind of like retro sci-fi or the whole lo-fi vibe thing that is really popular now. The song selections are represented by VHS tapes, and the main menu has the Bomberman sitting in a small room with a lot of analog electronic equipment and CRTs. The main menu art is pretty incredible though, please google it if you haven't seen it yet. Amazing Bomberman feels fairly unfocused though. It's not a rhythm game, since the actual songs have very little effect on the gameplay outside of distracting you or dropping power-ups in blocks. Visually, it's a mix of a bunch of different things. Someone at Konami saw Tetris Effect and thought, that's got a lot of pixels exploding, so let's go with that. You're earning customization elements for your profile and character, but these aren't particularly amazing. Konami keeps trying to make Bomberman customization happen, but you really just want a very clear color to differentiate yourself from the other characters. I don't care if Bomberman wears a flannel shirt or suit or scuba gear or whatever. I want to know if he's the white bomber or the red bomber or the blue one. Another nitpick I have about this game are the touch controls. I suppose it's not the game's fault since it's got to be on hardware with no buttons, and they give you a lot of control customization options, but I can't play Bomberman or any action game with touch controls. As a random game to play as part of a larger service, I mean, it's alright. There are some good songs, and you might laugh at the ridiculousness of it all at first. I'm not super hot on it, but honestly, I would probably buy it on Switch for about $5-10 to $10 solely for button controls. But it's basic Bomberman with a slight gimmick. Unlike other Konami series, there are at least a few new Bomberman games coming out, so I feel obligated to support them in some way. Though I think it's much easier to make a new Bomberman game than a new MGS one, right? They tried their big online game with R Online, which was amazing, but I feel that people who want to play Bomberman online are too few to support an entire game. I'd like to see Konami be a bit more ambitious with the franchise, or let somebody with a new idea take a crack at it. I think we are blessed and or doomed with that was alright type of Bomberman games until there's some mix-up. That's all for games, let's check out the news. There's actually an absurd amount of news this time around. I can't get to all of it, but I'll touch on the fun stuff at least. But come on, there's one news story I gotta put right at the top, Mr. Aonuma's 10-minute presentation on The Legend of Zelda Tears of the Kingdom. The bad thing about doing a bi-weekly podcast is that if anything happens the day after an episode, well, you gotta wait a while. And I know I am super late to the party here, but if you need more Zelda in your life, keep on listening. The presentation was an overview of some of Link's new abilities, Recall, which lets you reverse the momentum of an object, Fuse, which combines weapons, Ultra Hand, which lets you pick up and combine larger objects to make vehicles, and Ascend, which warps you through ceilings. We've actually seen all of these abilities before in past trailers, though they were out of context, and we weren't quite sure how to initiate them. And this gets me thinking, there must be so much that they haven't shown yet. If they could expand to this degree on stuff we have seen, just think of all the systems and features that haven't even been hinted at yet. For one, there's almost certainly more powers than this. 
People have noticed that on the Zelda OLED and other promo material, there are more power markings. For example, all your powers are displayed via a symbol on the HUD. Some are drawings, like Link going up, but Recall is a stylized kanji. It somewhat looks like the kanji for time, which, yeah, makes sense. Yet there are other stylized kanji on promo material. So are these new abilities? Maybe. Though if we've already seen all the abilities in the game, I wouldn't be disappointed since they open up so many new ways to play. Recall. In the HUD it says Rewind, so I don't know why. It has a different name. You basically send an object back to where it was. It seems like reversing momentum and not exactly time travel. Though I don't get why everything else goes black and white. Maybe to make it easier to see? In the video, we see Link ascending to the sky via reversing a falling block. But in another trailer, we saw some combat scenario where Link reverses a giant spike ball back to the enemies. I think that this is going to be a very puzzle-focused ability. I'm sure there will be plenty of shrines dedicated solely to this one mechanic. Next is Fuse, and this is the big one. You can combine items to make weapons, like a stick and a boulder to make a big rock hammer, or a long stick and a pitchfork which makes a very, very long spear type of weapon. Essentially weapon crafting, but you aren't opening up a menu to do so. This is a mechanic I have long suspected was in the game. In the 2021 trailer, you can clearly see something attached to a shield, so my assumption was that they would introduce weapon crafting to alleviate concerns of weapon durability. Before your sword breaks, just slap something new onto it to make it last longer and give it new properties. I absolutely love this mechanic. Think of all the possibilities here. What happens if I attach a pitchfork to a shield? Can I fuse two swords together? Can I put a mushroom on an axe? My mind is racing with all the possibilities. We saw some arrow fusion as well, such as crafting ice and homing arrows based on what you attach to it. This not only opens up new possibilities for combat, but also puzzle solving and exploration. Everyone's loadout will be completely unique. I've always liked weapon durability. It was one of the driving elements of Breath of the Wild, so I do wonder if people who hated weapon durability are cool with this system. Things still break, but you can literally just pick up stuff off the ground and make a brand new weapon. We only saw two items fused together, but I suspect we can attach more. In the video after Link had made a log club, it looked like he could fuse something else to it. Plus, in a past trailer, Link wielded a cannon that looked like it was made out of three distinct parts. So I think the limit will be at least three. This is a mechanic I'm most excited about. I can't wait to see what kind of wild and wacky weapons we can create. Next is Ultra Hand. Hey, Nintendo reference, everyone. I love this completely random callback to one of their original toys. This sort of works like Magnesis from Breath of the Wild, where you can pick up objects. Only this time, you attach them to other things to make vehicles and maybe even structures. This was the big surprise in the last trailer, as Link can now traverse the world via these makeshift vehicles. It'll be fun to see how far they can push this mechanic. To me, a big part of the appeal of Breath of the Wild was traversal via foot and all the challenges that entailed. It felt very raw, very real. But now we can build a car, so I'm a bit unsure about how that's going to play into the overall loop of the game. These machines are powered by Zonai devices, and yes, we have Zonai confirmation, everybody. And this leads me into another major gameplay mechanic. We are probably going to earn battery upgrades somehow. Hearts, stamina, and now battery. Link has these vials on his hip, which have the same green energy we've seen on all these Sky technology. Except, I don't think they're vials. They're actually batteries. We see a three-bar battery in the video, and that's not nearly enough to traverse some areas. Will these simply be shrine rewards, or do we need to go somewhere else to collect more battery juice? The Ultra Hand mechanic is way more seamless than I thought. 
You don't go into some clunky menu. Everything is in the field. Actually, sticking stuff together doesn't seem to take any resources either. I think many assume the green goop that connects everything would be some sort of finite resource, but it really is just there as an indicator. We can also very easily detach objects and adjust them in a 3D space. I still have a lot of questions about this mechanic, but hey, I gotta build a mech. The last power was Ascend, which lets you phase through ceilings. If you're in a cave, you can warp all the way to the top of the mountain. We also saw this in the 2021 trailer, except Link was going through the bottom of a sky island. So can we just warp from the ground to the sky via Ascend? I assume there is a range, but it might be longer than we think. People also noticed that you can use it when Link was briefly underwater, but I'm not sure if that actually confirms underwater exploration or not. Like recall, this looks to be a very puzzle-focused ability. We will be able to reach new areas, maybe even find secret areas hidden inside mountains or buildings by ascending up into it. These sky islands are all on different levels, so I have to imagine we will be able to warp to some only via the ascent feature. This was perhaps the least exciting power, but it'll be useful in the main game. I can't get into every other little thing we saw, but there was a ton of small details. What were those smoke symbols on the ground? Did everybody see that weird purple cloud? Now that we know the Zonai built these robots, well, what does that mean? Are the Sky Islands actually the sacred realm? What is going on in general? I've been having a lot of fun watching analysis videos detailing all these weird objects in places that are just out of view. I loved everything I saw and I'm more excited than ever. I will try to have a predictions segment in one of my upcoming episodes just to get this all out of my system. The marketing for Tears of the Kingdom hasn't ramped up in Japan just yet. It will probably be about another week or two before we really start seeing some fun stuff like collaborations and new merch. Game stores do have a ton of Tears of the Kingdom displays and banners hanging around everywhere. I saw a few Zelda OLEDs in the flesh on my last trip to Yodobashi Camera as well. But I want to see new Nintendo Tokyo merch, some train station ads, some 7-Eleven snacks. I want the Splatoon 3 treatment for the newest Zelda game. Moving on from that, there's been some shakeups at Creatures Inc. Sunakazu Ishihara and Hirokazu Tanaka, aka Hip Tanaka, have stepped down from the CEO and president roles of Creatures Inc. Now, Yuji Kitano is the CEO slash president with Tomotaku Komura as the executive vice president. There has been no info or press release regarding this yet. It's such a major change that it seems like it should have some sort of explanation. Ishihara is still the president of the Pokemon company, but I'm unsure what new role Hip Tanaka has. It's hard to give some reasoning as to why or some insight on what these changes mean, if anything. I can't imagine creatures announcing, we've got a bold new vision for the future, when they mostly just handle spinoff games and work on the Pokemon models. But I am curious as to what Tanaka is going to do next. He's still a very active musician, so maybe he solely wants to focus on that. And keeping with Pokemon, Pokemon Stadium is coming to Nintendo Switch Online on April 12th. This is the first time it's been ported from the N64. Sadly, we can't transfer any Pokemon into the game. I know a lot of people assumed Pokemon would come to NSO, and then we could transfer those Pokemon into Pokemon Stadium, but nope. That would admittedly be a ton of work that I don't think anyone wants to do. Pokemon Stadium is kind of a fun game, but a major part of its appeal was seeing Pokemon in 3D, and yeah, being able to use your Game Boy Pokemon in the game. And also being able to play the Game Boy game inside Pokemon Stadium. But we still have those sweet, sweet minigames. Also, did you know that this is actually Pokemon Stadium 2 in Japan? The very first Pokemon Stadium game is actually Japan only and has only about 40 Pokemon. The US Pokemon Stadium 2 is actually called Pokemon Gold and Silver in Japan. Just a fun bit of trivia. 
that first Pokemon Stadium game is pretty unique in that it sold over a million copies in Japan alone, but I can't imagine it will ever get ported to anything ever again. Nintendo has announced Nintendo Systems, a new joint venture between them and DNA, to bring Nintendo Entertainment to consumers. It's very vague, but it seems to be focusing on improving digital technology and bringing Nintendo stuff outside of their flagship hardware. So I assume more mobile games and beyond. Nintendo has really dialed back on their mobile initiatives, so this might be a reboot of that concept, or maybe it refers to something completely different. For now, it's hard to get excited or angry about whatever this is. Worth noting that the logo looks very similar to the Nintendo Pictures logo, so it does kind of tie in with the concept of expanding Nintendo beyond just games. King of Fighters 13 Global Match is coming to Switch this year. It will feature rollback netcode for online play. This was the last pixel art King of Fighters game, and those graphics were gorgeous. When 14 was announced and they said, we're moving away from pixels, I totally understood, considering the absurd amount of work it probably took into creating just one singular character in 13. 13 is a very solid KOF title. It does have a limited number of characters compared to something like 98 or 2002, but I think it's pretty easy to pick up and play. If the price is right, I wouldn't mind double dipping on Switch. I love King of Fighters, but I don't have any King of Fighters games on Switch yet. I keep holding out for 98 or 2002's Ultimate Match versions, or the home version of 11. So maybe I should just nab this one. Nobunaga's Ambition Awakening is coming to Switch, Steam, and PlayStation in the West on July 20th. This was released last year as Rebirth in Japan. It's the 40th anniversary title. Hard to believe this series has been around that long. This is the first time this series is getting an English release on Switch as well. Both Sphere of Influence and Taishi are on the console, but only in Japan. Poking around a bit, a lot of people seem pretty mixed on this game. Sphere of Influence is quite good though, so if you can't read Japanese, maybe it's best to jump into the series from that game on Steam. Now for This Week in Tokyo. The city recently got the King of Games 20th Anniversary Exhibit in Tobichi, the official Hobonichi shop. Hobonichi being Shigesato Itoi's company. King of Games is an apparel brand with a ton of gaming collaborations, including a lot of Nintendo stuff. Their main shop is in Kyoto, and they opened up a pop-up store in Tokyo for a limited time. The real reason to visit the exhibit is their incredible collection of gaming memorabilia. A ton of old toys from the 80s and 90s, with 90% of it being Nintendo-themed. There were so many items I had never seen before, like a plushie of Cape Mario and even a Mario Kart telephone. I posted some pictures already on Twitter and will probably post some more, so check that out. Also next week, Kirby Cafe Petite will open up in Tokyo Station. It is a spinoff of the Kirby Cafe, but it's a sweets shop where you can just get takeout. No reservations required. There is a Kirby Car Cake, so I'll try to check it out ASAP. All right, let's wrap up. Thanks as always for listening. Be sure to like and subscribe to this podcast on your favorite app. Leave a five-star review as well. It helps with visibility. The podcast is also available on YouTube, so like and subscribe there as well. I'm on Twitter and Instagram. Just search for Tokyo Game Life or find the links in the podcast description. If you like the podcast, be sure to share it with your friends and on social media. If there's anything you want me to talk about or cover, don't be shy. Just message me on Twitter. The next episode will be on April 23rd. See you next time. Matane. Matane.